On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we are talking about why it is that looking at a screen all day, if you're doing Zoom calls and Zoom meetings and all this, and finding yourself fatigued, you shouldn't be, right? I mean, it's just looking at a screen, but there is evidence, there is new reports that the Zoom fatigue phenomenon is real. We're going to talk to someone about why, what is going on that makes staring at a screen for a meeting tiring. We're also talking about whether or not there should be a boycott of the Olympics. We're talking to you about that. We're talking to callers. Stick around. One great person at the end who has a really interesting perspective on this. You'll want to hear that one. And we are talking about what is going on in Montreal with the Montreal Canadiens cleaning house and the challenges that franchise finds itself in every single time things like this happen. Stick around. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. Do you work from home? Do you spend a lot of time video chatting from home, either for work or just with family elsewhere? Um, and, and it's supposed to be easy. It's very convenient. You probably don't get out of your pajamas. You sit in a comfortable chair. You have your own coffee. It doesn't cost any money. You don't have to commute. It should be the most relaxing way of working. You would think, I would think. Well, except a lot of people are saying that they're finding this particularly exhausting. They're particularly worn down by spending all their time doing calls online, meetings online. Well, there's a name for this thing. It is being called Zoom fatigue. And apparently it is a real thing. You're not alone. If you're finding this, there are lots of other people who are finding the exact same thing. To talk about it, I want to bring in Dr. Jeff Hancock. He's a founding director of the Stanford University Social Media Lab and a professor in the Department of Communication at Stanford University. Dr. Hancock, thanks for doing this today. I appreciate it. Hi, how are you doing today, Scott? We are great. Uh, we are fascinated by this topic, though, because for most of us, I think, the idea that sitting in front of a computer screen would be exhausting sounds ludicrous until we do it all day, and then all of a sudden we realize we are really tired but I'm wondering, before we get into the reasons why, why you started looking into this, was this a personal experience thing that you were finding, or was this just something that you were hearing from a lot of people also? Well, it was a combination. Uh, certainly when the pandemic hit and Zoom became a lifeline, really, to connect with uh, not only work, but family and, and friends, um, it, it was a really positive thing. And after a while, I started to notice that, geez, I was really exhausted by the end of the day. And uh, when I talked to my colleagues, um, my good friend, Jeremy Bounce at Stanford, was feeling the same thing. So started to look into it, and um, sure enough, there's a lot of good reasons for why we might feel fatigue in ways that are different than if we were meeting you know, face-to-face in the office. Well, let's jump into some of those because there's a bunch of them that have been cited by by you and he, and I find some of these, well, I find all of them really fascinating, but a couple of them in particular, I never in a million years would have guessed at, but let's get into the first one here, which is uh, that you cite that it's tiring to always be being watched. Your face is always there and other people are looking at you face to face, eye to eye. Why would that be tiring? Yeah, it's a really great uh, point, but it's, it's sort of surprising because we kind of think that we're looking at other people's eyes and they're looking at us all the time, but really it's more like a dance. So when, we, when we're talking to another person, we don't look at them in the eyes constantly. Um, it's, uh, I look away and then we look at each other and you nod and you're like, okay, we're still paying attention to each other. It's a dance. Whereas when we're on Zoom, 
And if, especially if you have a typical setup, you're staring at the other person and they're staring at you. Feeling like you've been like you're being stared at is actually physiologically arousing. It, it, it's your system telling you that there are people looking at you. And uh, when that's happening all day, it's like your your body's ramped up. And um, there's ways to fix it. That particular one, a good thing to do is um, shrink the Zoom uh, window as much as you can. And if you're doing work stuff and you have the you know resources, you have two computers. The best thing is to make uh, one computer onto the side set up as your Zoom machine, and then your work, whatever you're doing, on another machine straight ahead. What that does allows you to look at them when you're talking to them and look at your work. When you are talking to um, when you're talking to them, you look at them. When you're working on your work, you will then um, look away, and it makes it very natural. You mentioned, or the example that was given was this would be similar to the exhaustion or the 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 feeling of being a public speaker. And for some people who don't like public speaking or are terrified of that, this can be a similar kind of thing where it would be just it would take it out of you. But and that makes a lot of sense that part. But on the flip side, for those who don't love public speaking and are shy, I can get why that would be fatiguing. But then. There are people who love public speaking and love being the center of attention. Shouldn't this be invigorating for them and be even more relaxing? No, I think that, um, you know, it's a good point that not everybody likes that. Um, there's certainly advantages to uh, doing Zoom things. Some people that find face-to-face conversations to be, you know, intense or they don't love um, communicating with more introverted people. Zoom does provide that kind of control that you're talking about. But if you had it set up where there's this really big screen, and especially if there's more than one person on the call and you have, you know, three, four, five people staring at you, it can, it can be tiring over time, and, it, and you don't even notice. Really. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Okay, so we said that part of it is that you're looking people in the eye all day long, which we're not used to and which has a physiological response. Second on the list... As humans, we interpret nonverbal cues from other people all day long. We're picking things up, but that causes our brains to do extra work. And we're not always, as you've pointed out during our day, we're not always staring at our coworkers or everyone else, but here you are. So your brain is kind of in the background. It sounds like there's another part of your brain that's having to process all day long. That's right. So things are just natural because we've evolved for hundreds of thousands of years to talk face to face. Now some of that's becoming intentional. We have to think about it. Can I interrupt Scott now? Can I, you know, is he seeing me right? Is he understanding what I'm trying to say? And so all those things that have been just natural for us, we, we think about now. And that extra thinking um, makes it a little more tiring than if we were hanging out with somebody face-to-face or, or in a, a board meeting. All right, this next one, I love this one because this is so bonkers and yet, I can see the point, but I would have never in a million years thought about this one. So I applaud you guys for coming up with this as a reason. We're distracted by our own faces that are on the screen all the time. How, I mean, look, it, it's a fascinating idea. How does that become a problem though, to be seeing ourself all day long? Yeah, it's crazy that um, the self view is the default in almost all of these systems. Um, imagine walking around all day with a mirror dangling, you know, a couple of feet in front of you so that everything you do, you would see in the mirror. Um, sure, it's good sometimes to take a look in the mirror, make sure you're looking all right. 
Sometimes <laughs> it's good to look in a mirror to be reminded that, you know, you are who you are. That's good. But constantly being shown who you are um, reminds us that, you know, we could be better. We could look better. Um, we're just sort of re- we're paying a bit too much attention to what we look like. And that's just not what we normally are like. And that adds to some of that exhaustion that we've been seeing. Is that exhaustion because we are, we feel a need that we must look our best all the time and therefore we're worried about it? That's right. In a way, we're talking to the other person, which already is a little bit more difficult because we're doing this a little bit unnatural thing that we normally naturally do. And there's this other thing on the, on the screen, which happens to be a picture of ourselves. And so we're, we're distracted by that as well. So our attention is now split between a little extra work talking to the other people and seeing our, our, our own space on the screen, which is really hard for us to look away. So best solution there, real simple. You can right-click on your own image in Zoom, and that'll give you the option to hide the uh, self-view. And my recommendation is you, you know, do that self-view, make sure you're looking all right, make sure your room looks okay, and then turn that thing off, and it'll be a huge relief right away. And you talk about the room view, and this was not even on your list, but one of the things that, I mean, a lot of people have found that there's a lot of comparison and jealousy and judgment and other things just by looking at what other people's houses look like there it's a competition and if your background if your house doesn't look as nice as someone else's that's become a bit of a problem for some people it has it has i mean a lot of it is in good fun and you know you see a lot of stuff on social media of people judging each other and most of that's in good fun but yeah there is some real social comparison and Humans naturally do it. It's like the Jones next door. And now you actually see what's inside the Jones's yeah. next door. Uh, so one thing that's a good recommendation is there are virtual backgrounds. Um, these are things that you can just uh, put a picture in. There's lots of tutorials online if you just look up Zoom virtual background. And that takes a lot of stress off. You can put up art or your dog's face or whatever you want. And then that's in your background. You have to worry a little bit less about people judging what they see and whether you left the, the laundry out or not. The fourth one that you guys came up with, and this one to me probably makes the most sense of all, or at least is the most, the one that I would have guessed at, it maybe is a better way to put it. And that is that if we are talking on the phone, you can walk around, you can put the phone under your chin by your ear and type or do something else. And, and people don't necessarily know that you're multitasking here. If you're on a zoom call, you kind of have to be sitting down, not moving, sitting in or standing, but emotionless for all intents and purposes in front of your computer all day. You get no exercise. You don't move around. You don't get to stretch your legs or do anything. You're just locked in this place for the whole day. That's right. It's one of those things you just don't think about. Um, when we watch people in face-to-face meetings, whether it's at work or socially, they're moving around all over the place. They're turning their bodies. Their core is getting a little bit of a workout. Uh, we're nodding, we're gesturing. That's all good. And then when we sit at Zoom, we're kind of captured by the uh, focus of the camera. And so we have to stay in frame. And this causes our bodies to move a lot less. We had a lot less core movement, a lot less gesturing, because gestures don't really translate super well in Zoom. And so if you're in this, you know, you're Zooming for like half an hour or whatever, no big deal. But if you're on Zoom for a substantial number of hours in the day, you're getting a lot less movement. So our recommendations there are pretty simple as well. Uh, One is just get the camera further from you. If you can, move it back a couple of feet. That gives you a bigger frame you can move around. Uh, The other is um, 
to take a little audio break. And I'm hoping that everybody uh, can be uh, generous and let others take <laughs> audio breaks where you're still listening, you're still engaged, but you get up and move around. I, I know with my students, uh, for them, no problem if they need to take a break and turn their video uh, cameras off. And uh, just, you know, give it a break. We, we've survived with phones for about 100 years. I think we could do just fine with audio for, <laughs> for a while, too. It's great ideas, and people can find these things online. There's lots of stories that have uh, been coming out in the last few days about this and about your work and about the studies. It's, uh, it's great that you can share these with us. Dr. Jeff Hancock from Stanford University, thanks for doing this. Thanks, Scott. Appreciate it. And if any of your listeners uh, want to uh, examine their own fatigue, we have a scale now. So if they look up the Stanford Exhaustion and Fatigue Scale, the ZEF scale, um, they'll find a link and they can uh, go through it and, and kind of get a sense of their own level of Zoom fatigue. Fantastic stuff. Really appreciate the time. Thank you for this. Thanks, Scott. Take care. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. I want to talk to you for the next few minutes about something that has been in the news for the last number of days, in fact, the last number of weeks, but you've heard lots from other people, but I want to let you have your say on this one because it is a, it is a, a really interesting conundrum for Canada to face. And that is in light of the vote in the House of Commons this week that declared that what ch- the Chinese government is doing to the Uyghur minority in the West of China, that it's a genocide. Once we as a country have declared that a government of another country is under undertaking, is holding, is doing a genocide, is guilty of a genocide, can we go to an Olympics a year from now in that same country? Can we in good conscience go to an Olympics in that country? Or are we almost required to boycott now as a point of principle. I want to know if you think we should or should not be looking seriously at a boycott of the Winter Beijing 2022 Olympics. 905-645-3221 or star 9900. Should we or should we not be considering a boycott? Now, the, the arguments are, you know, very plain on both sides. The pro-boycott that we should not go is you've got a government that has now been accused and we've decided is guilty of horrendous things against people and attending their two-week-long festival party celebration of their culture and of their country that shows them that's you know that's a propaganda device that's what all i mean every olympics is a propaganda device not not just in china or other places any olympics is a propaganda device the, the olympics in vancouver were a propaganda device for canada it showed us at our absolute best to the world propaganda has a negative connotation and sometimes for good reason but propaganda is just we are going to only put forward our best look We're going to hide a lot of the warts and everything else. We want to make ourselves look absolutely our best for the world. Well, that's what propaganda is, really. Every Olympics is a propaganda outing. So do we take part in a Chinese propaganda outing, knowing what's going on? That's the, that's the, obviously the no side, the, the, we shouldn't boycott goes to the fact that, well, you know, we've had a boycott before in 1980, didn't go to the games in Moscow. 
not really sure how much it changed. And the people who were hurt by this weren't really the government officials. It was the athletes. It was our athletes who couldn't go, who trained for years and became pawns in a giant political game. So what do you think? Should we, or should we not be considering a boycott of the Beijing Olympics? You've heard, as I say, over the last number of days and weeks, even in the House of Commons, they talked about this. You've heard lots of talk about this idea. Where do you stand on this one? Let's go to Brian first. Brian is in first today. Sir, how are you this evening? I'm great. Thank you. What do you think, Brian? Now, we're not even pegging you down to say absolutely yes or no, but at this point, because we don't know what can happen over the next number of months, but at this point, would you be leaning towards a yes or a no to a boycott? Oh, I I would be leaning uh, directly towards a boycott. I believe all the Western world and Europe uh, should be should be uh, coming down very hard on the CCP. Um, this is a this is a government that uh, has no respect for human rights, and I believe that uh, unless we um, unless we join forces together, they they will. They will dominate the world, and that is their agenda. And I, I do believe, I, I know it's unfortunate for our, our Olympians, but I think we need to take a stand. Brian, I thank you for the call. I appreciate the insights. Thanks for calling in tonight. Uh, so there's one vote for a boycott. Let's go to Frank. Frank, how are you this evening? For yourself? I'm great, thank you. What do you think, yes or no? Now, and again, understanding that things potentially could change over the next year or so, but right now, what would be your leaning? I would absolutely boycott them. My concern would be, why would the Chinese not just grab our Olympians and lock them away like they did the two Michaels? And I think every country in the world should be worried about that because they obviously have a lot of space and sending millions of these, um, I forget what they're called, into concentration camps. What's the few hundred or few thousand? The Uyghurs. The Uyghurs. You know, they have no respect for human life, and I would really, like I said, be concerned that they just grab them. Frank, I thank you so much for the call. Appreciate you calling in tonight. Thanks for this. That was super nice. You as well. Let's go to Tony. Tony, how are you tonight? What do you think about this? Too bad. Just listening to you for carrying on. Uh, well, <laughs> I guess that's good. Where do you lean on this, Tony? Yes to a boycott uh, right thinking, now or no? I'm thinking that if you do not say something about it and stand for the ground, just like they're they're doing against the racialism uh, to, uh, here in uh, Canada and the United States, if you stand by and let it happen, you are condoning, uh, I think it's condoning, uh, giving them permission to continue on. Uh, doing it, and that's what they did during the Second World War with the uh, with the uh, the Jews. What they did to them, and uh, those are, and uh, and the solution uh, that I, I think that every country that objects to the uh, persecution or uh, of these people should boycott the country and have their own Olympics uh, mm. that. Uh, of the people that do not agree with the way they're uh, they're treating their people, have their own Olympics in a different area, and those that uh, want to want to continue on with uh, this uh, annihilation of people, have their own Olympics. 
Tony, I thank you so much for the call. Interesting idea. 905-645-3221 or star 9900. Yes or no, at this moment, things could change. But at this moment, yes or no to a boycott of the Beijing Olympics. Naomi joins us on the show tonight. Naomi, thanks for calling in. How are you? I'm good, Scott. How are you? I'm doing wonderful. Thank you. Thanks for calling in. What do you think? As of right now, if you had to make the call, which way are you leaning? I 100% agree with you. Um, I was really disappointed with Justin Trudeau not showing up for the vote. It's people's lives that you're talking about. It's not like uh, something that's not that serious. Like people are people are dying, and China has a reputation for not having great human rights. And I think that it's important for the world to stand up and say, no, this isn't right. Start taxing the bejeebas out of them when, and start relying on them a lot less. All our goods come from China. You know, like we could be doing so much here in Canada, but we rely on them. And I think Justin Trudeau, what he did was just an act of being a coward because he can go home at night and sleep in his nice warm bed but these people who are being chained up and shackled and i mean they're being murdered and raped it's it's the stories are yeah naomi the stories are not good let's put it that way and uh yeah yeah, thank listen thank you so much for the call i appreciate your insights very much let's go to trisha who is calling in and i believe trisha may have a unique perspective ben tells me in my ear trisha how are you tonight i'm good thank you how are you I'm wonderful. Thanks for calling in. Now, yes. give us, tell me, I said you have a unique perspective. Explain why, if you don't mind. I do. I'm the mother of Miles Meisner Daly. Who, who is a is, tremendous runner for people who don't know, and they should, an amazing local Hamilton runner who is an Olympian or will soon be. Uh, so just as a background, uh, that's, yes. that's who we're talking to. Go ahead, Tricia. Yeah. I mean, if I think about um, politically, socially, things that are happening around the world in every country there that really there's lots of things happening that are shameful and and horrendous but from the perspective of a mother who my son has been training so hard for so long you know and last year last summer we had to back burner it because of covid you know he's back into training he's sticking to a very rigid training plan He goes to UCLA. He went to LA in these COVID-type conditions, ultimately to be able to train and fulfill this Olympic dream. So all things aside around where it is and and the, the stuff that happens in countries, this is his dream. He's blood, sweat, and tears. As a parent, all I've done is cooked and driven and cooked and driven. And, you know, the emotional support and the physical support support and to have everything lead up to last summer you know it was one let down after another so all the training and all the time and and the work he puts his body through i ultimately i i want his dream to come to fruition simply because of the work he's put into obtaining this goal yeah and trisha let me just say and to your point i mean uh, with him and with the other athletes and you say it's his dream it's more than their dream it is their livelihood as you say this is not just something where the so and this is what makes this discussion so unbelievably complicated because you do have the human rights thing but you do have people who are doing like your son is and does 
And, you know, it's not like for some people who would say, well, this is an easy decision. We just don't go. It, it's absolutely right. not an easy decision. It is in no way an easy decision. No, no. And that's why, and, and we only have a few seconds, but I want to ask you this yeah. one more question very quickly. That's why I believe it's an entire cop-out by the Canadian government to pass this to the Canadian Olympic Committee to make this decision. It puts them in an impossible position. This should be a government decision, I believe, ultimately, not bureaucrats or other people at a lower level. But what do you think about that? I firmly agree with you. I firmly agree with you. Yeah, it's it, um it, it needs to be a decision at a federal level, definitely. Yeah, it can't be a pass the buck. This is way too big a thing no. with way too many people no. being hurt and affected to make this something that a bureaucrat has to decide. Listen, Trisha, I, I sincerely appreciate you calling in and I hope you will call in again sometime when uh, when the topic comes up again. We love hearing from you. Thanks for doing this. Absolutely and thank you for your support. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let me bring in our good friend Bubba O'Neill from CHCH TV Sports. Just got off the air after doing his cast. Sir, how are you this evening? Yeah, you know, it's been, um, you know, it's been, it's been amazing to me, really, how busy sports has been. And I'm and just, just today, but just, Overall, I think I think when we looked at this pandemic and you know where we were, very getting very close to a year ago when everything shut down and wondering, you know, how things would respond and you know, and, and it's just come back so quickly, I guess, in some ways based on the pandemic and what's going on, and yet there is just so much news that's going on. It re- it really is amazing to me. Well, yeah. And you know, when you want to bring up the pandemic and, and I wasn't going to, and we'll do this very quickly and then move on. Cause I didn't want to spend a ton of time on this one, but the Ontario government has now given out some more details of what it's going to be doing as far as its vaccination plan. Once it gets some vaccines from the federal government, if we can ever figure that part out and what they're talking about now, Bubba, and I think you probably saw this. It was probably, I didn't see CHCH tonight, but I'm sure it was on your news this evening is they're going to be giving out the vaccines based on age in descending order from 80 plus. And then if you're 75 to 80 and then 70 to 75 and then 65 to 70 and so on. And they're going to be doing that. And we're looking now that for anyone under 60, the timeline looks like it's going to be late summer earliest before you can get a vaccine. And that all that tells me, and the reason I bring this up is because, you know, we're talking about sports and getting back into a stadium or into an arena or something. We're still months and months away, it seems, from any kind of live fans, any kind of live action at a sporting event. If we're not getting people under 60 years old vaccinated until near the end of the summer, and then we're going to get to all the people under that, it's, we're months away. Well, and that's the and, and you know where that leans to, and of course to many of uh, of your listeners right now, and uh, the the state of the Canadian Football League, mm-hmm. um, who we you know, I have discussed on this program, um, and on our home games podcast that you know this is the league that requires people to be in seats. Um, I'm not I you know me I might have been the the least optimistic of our four of our group on our podcast about a season happening this year. And you telling me that, because I did not know, I'm glad you told me, um, 
I'm not. I'm. I'm. I'm probably even more least. I mean, I don't know if I'm saying this right. My my optimism has is sinking. <laughs> is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. Well, and and the podcast that Bob is talking about, um, Steve Milton from the Spec and myself and Rick Zamperin and Bubba do a thing called Home Games that's on YouTube three times a week. You can find it there. Just go look up Home Games Hamilton and you'll find it. We were talking about this, and this was before we talked about it today. There's a new one today, and we talked about this, but it was before we knew about this. And look, I, I hold out great hope and I try to be optimistic that the timelines they're putting out could be accelerated. Maybe things can go really well. But even if, you know, even if we get the people down to 60 done by June, that means you've still got everybody under 60 who is only getting to get started after that. It's, boy, it's, um, it looks like it's a tough spot right now. I, I don't know how we get to anything faster, but let's keep our fingers crossed and touch wood and hope and all the rest of the stuff. Cause this is uh, we, we need to start getting back to normal. Speaking of normal, and there's nothing normal about this story. The Montreal Canadians today, a team that is, that has a winning record that is in a playoff position in the Canadian division that had a great start to the season. And that has a coach that has won a Stanley cup before with the Boston Bruins and is pretty well regarded around the league. Claude Julian, they decided they were getting rid of him today and they cleaned out, they got rid of him and they got rid of assistant coach Kirk Muller. And is this just par for the course in a market like Montreal, where you lose a few games in a row and two of them to the woeful Ottawa senators and it's time to panic. Well, you know, like I said in my, <clears throat> in today's broadcast, uh, to CHH at, the six o'clock news is that um, I think there was a feeling amongst many in the National Hockey League that with you know the condensed schedule, the condensed fifty-six game schedule, and you know some may not play fifty-six games, um, the pandemic, you know the positive test, the negative test, the you know time off, uh, the division realignment, that this might be the one season where coaches get kind of a free pass. Mm. But we're seeing that in Montreal, they hang on every win and every loss. And Bergevin, the general manager there, has pulled the trigger. Um, he shares a good relationship with Claude Julien. He's there watching every night, so I'm not. I've, I mean, I watched almost, almost every one of these Canadian games, but he sees it from a different aspect than I do. And obviously, he's in touch with the players, maybe in a veteran captain like Shea Weber, and perhaps, you know, every coach in every sport, for the most part, has an expiry date where the message that they are sending through their mouth just becomes null and void or just isn't being heard by the players. And I guess he thought that was the time. Today was the time to do this. I am amazed, quite honestly, so I, 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 I probably shouldn't be too surprised by a coaching change because they do happen, although I agreed with you. I thought that under the circumstances, and you know, especially because you can't get anybody across the border right now and they'd have to be quarantined. Now they found someone in-house to replace Julian, so they got that done. But I'm amazed that Mark Bergevin, who's the general manager of the Canadians, <clears throat> gets away with this with ownership because his team's... How I don't know how he is still there to make this call is what I'm getting at. He, his teams have not been great. Uh, they made the playoffs last year only because the season got extended because of COVID and the Canadians got a second crack at it and got in. 
His farm teams, his drafting has not been good. His farm teams, remember when he, he was the GM when the Bulldogs were still here in Hamilton, missed the playoffs the last four years they were in Hamilton, then missed, I think, two years when they moved to Laval with a, with a stopover in St. John's before that. Uh, like Mark Bergevin is not exactly wrapped up in glory for this franchise, and yet they're still letting him make these decisions. That's what shocks me. Well, here's the thing: is that Julian only had one more year uh, the next season on uh, on a five million dollar contract. So, you know, in today's, you know, you're thinking about the Leafs and say like Mike Babcock, you know, five million dollars is nothing for the Molsons, the Molson family. Um, but it, here, is it a sense here? Maybe you might believe this or not. It that if you're Bergevin, it's either he goes or I go. Because Bergevin, who has been looking for a contract extension, there has been no talk of it. So he's coming also to the end of his deal. And either I want to keep my job <laughs> or someone else does, right? And I have that power. So Julian goes, I stay, I go to a man that I trust, that I know needs to, that, that is looking for an opportunity, that is well known in the area. And to top it off with, with a little gravy, gravy on top of the poutine, he's French Canadian. Well, that, certainly that does not hurt in Montreal. That that's a very important thing for a lot of folks there, a lot of fans that the the coach be certainly be bilingual. If he is French Canadian, that helps as well. And I mean, look, we're not making this up. This is a this is a real thing. There is a column, and I'm not going to read the column on the air because I'll get fired for reading it if I read it on the air, but it's by a writer in Quebec and it was just from a couple of weeks ago. And it was so over the top about the lack of French Canadians on the Montreal Canadians, lack of Francophone stars. And I mean, I, I again, I don't even want to get too much into it because it gets into such delicate air. The, the, the reality, the insistence in some corners that the coach be, francophone for sure and well bilingual for sure and francophone you know so so the guy they've brought in Ducharme he fits that bill and he probably will be great Claude Julien was that guy uh Michel Therrien before that he was that guy you go down the list the one guy who really stands out was Randy Cunningworth who was great here in Hamilton and earned every bit of that promotion to Montreal he deserved that shot he only got 50 games but you know what it's um it seems it's a fascinating story, and and they have clearly in Montreal political, social, social, pardon me, pressures with that team that no other team I don't think in the NHL has in any kind of way. No, well, no, I mean, nobody in the states in Nashville says we have to have a coach from Tennessee. Well, I mean, no, you. It's a different. I mean, to be to be fair here, it's a totally different. I mean, no team. As you said, is bilingual in, in, in the National right. Hockey League. Other right. other than you know, you know, they, they play in Quebec and they play. They, it's a different language. It's a different. Uh, it's a different culture. I think that's fair to say. Um, I think there absolutely. Are many but you would never see. But Bubba, you would never see in say Miami in Florida and Sunrise with the Panthers. You would never see a push. I don't think for. And I haven't seen this with any of their teams. Maybe I missed it to say we must have a Cuban American person running the show. Well, I think we're kind of have they that right now. I mean, and, and you know, just I'm not just being devil's advocate here, Scott. I mean, we're, we're we're hearing a lot more of you know that we need more Hispanics, we need more minority hirings in the in, in the National Football League, 
and I and I guess if you're in if you're in Quebec, I mean, especially if you're a French, you know, French first a resident in Quebec, that your hockey team and having more French players, French born, French speaking players, is that not similar to the type type of inclusion that you know many teams in, in baseball and football are talking about in terms I, of inclusion? I, I, in some ways, although the difference is that in baseball and in football, especially where you're seeing these calls for this, it's not a specific team in a specific market that's calling for it. It's across the league. We need more minorities in these positions. Right. And and as I say, I, I you know I'm sure that the Miami Marlins or the Miami or the Florida Panthers or whomever would love to have minorities involved, but I I I can't think of another market where the market itself dictates as opposed to just a social movement where the market itself dictates that we need to, or want to have somebody of that background in our, in our leadership group. Maybe it exists. I've, I can't think of one. But I, but I, I would say to you that, that there is no, it's this, it's the only, it's a special circumstance in North it America. Is. Absolutely. Is no, it is. There is no, Again, I mean, Quebec is mainly French-speaking. I mean, if you're in Montreal, you could get away with some English, but you you move you go sixty kilometers east out of Montreal, and you better learn to speak some French, um, or you're in trouble. Absolutely, and, absolutely. And, and 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 this is why it is a very unique situation in in the province of Quebec, which does not exist for any other of the four major. Um, you know what? I'll include the CFL in this, right? I think there, there there was a call for the Montreal Alouettes to get uh, some, you know, when they replaced uh, Reed as the general manager, to get Danny Machocha in there. Mm-hmm. And it's a you go to the press conference; it's French first. English yep. answers question, English questions and answers second. So. This may not be unique just to the Habs. Well, no, it's not. No, no, no. It's it's to the it's to the sports teams that are there. And once again, you know what? I I don't look. I don't take issue with it. If it is your culture, if you have a demand to the point where, you know, I cited that column that I read from there. That was an offensive column. The way it was worded was an offensive column, but I don't have a problem as a rule if your fan base says this is important to us. The The thing you have to accept if you do that, though, is that you are going to be reducing your field of candidates who can fit that criteria. And so, you know, someone like, um, I don't know, who's who's an out-of-work coach right now that's done very well? Joel Quenville. He's still out of work, right? Joel Quenville? No, he's in Florida. Mike Babcock. Oh, he's in Florida. Right. Okay, you're right. I forgot that he was there. Uh, Pick someone else then. Bruce Boudreaux. All right, Bruce Boudreaux. Yeah, Boudreaux. Uh, You know what? That's a guy, I guess, that you don't even put on your interview list because I don't don't know if Bruce Boudreaux speaks French. Um, His name, it kind of could sound French, I guess. I guess Boudreaux. You know, but there are, but you've, you've made a decision if you're going to go this way, that this is very, very important to us, but that's going to limit your field. And if thankfully for them, not only do they have a good guy, I say in Ducharme, who's, who's very qualified, who's the interim coach here. And because you're coming from a hockey uh, culture, there are lots of people 
who know the game and, you know, Guy Boucher is out there who people have talked about or Patrick Roy, who you threw out on social media today, you know, there, there are possibilities. Uh, it's not like you're working from a, a, a cultural position where we don't have someone who knows the game. They do. They got lots and lots of people. It just, it, it creates a, a very different scenario than you would get with the Maple Leafs or any other team in hockey. In those cases, you would say, we'll take whoever. Now that said, before I let you jump back in, I don't want to keep going. What would happen if the Toronto Maple Leafs went to get someone who, I don't know, was a Russian head coach? See, now, I mean, now you, I don't know how that would even play or, or someone else from Europe who English wasn't their right. first language. Would that work? I don't know. I think it would now, but I don't know. I, well, and I would wonder in, in, they say, the KHL, if that, you know, if, if teams are looking generally, and I know, you know, you've seen guys like Mike Keenan go over there, uh, Paul Maurice has gone over there and coached there. Um, but if they're actually looking, you know, they would prefer to have Russian speaking and Russian born coaches in that league. I mean, I, am just not familiar enough with the situation. Um, you know, I, you know, it's funny that this is still a topic in, in Quebec and obviously a very strong topic, um, considering the time, and I guess that had been in the 70s and the very early 80s, I guess, when, you know, you had two referendum questions and, you know, a possibility of Quebec separating from Canada, that at that time, the Canadians were in the midst of one of their most successful runs with an English-speaking head coach. Yep, but with an awful lot of Francophone superstars on the ice, which may have offset the Scotty Bowman factor. Uh, possibly, possibly. Maybe. You know, what we never got to, and we got to go, what we never got to in this whole thing, which is kind of ironic, is that it really doesn't matter what language or what nationality or what name the new coach has or whoever's behind the bench for the Montreal Canadiens. If your number one goalie, who's supposed to be the greatest goalie in the world, who's making $10.5 million, who we know very well from his time here in Hamilton, if Carey Price is not playing well, and boy, he has not been playing well, it doesn't matter who you are, you're going to be a horrible coach. Because Carey Price is carrying the fortune of that team in a big way. Well, that's so much that uh, I think for the first time in his reign as the number one goaltender in Montreal, that he's seeing his playing time, you know, almost cut in half. I mean, Jake Allen, who was acquired um, in the offseason has almost the same amount of playing time as, as, as Carey Price and has been more successful. It will, uh, it will be th- that, to me, the coaching thing is, Claude Julien is not only still coaching, but, is, but Mark Bergevin, with a few of the signings he made in the offseason, is considered a favorite for manager of the year, and Claude Julien might be in the running for coach of the year if Carey Price has a 950 save percentage like he has had or close to it in the past. All of a sudden, Carey Price is under 900 save percentage. Claude Julien is out of a job. Mark Bergevin's on the hot seat and the Canadians are teetering on the precipice of falling out of a playoff spot. It's amazing how much weight and power and impact one guy can have. Yeah, well, maybe it's also a sign that you shouldn't be relying on your goaltender so much. Ah, uh, well, that, that's a whole other discussion, but it's a hundred percent true. Um, you know, and again, we got to go, but think back to even to Pat Quinn. I mean, a guy, obviously a legend here in Hamilton, but Pat Quinn had Curtis Joseph and then Pat Quinn had Ed Belfour and they were happy days when the goalies are stopping the puck. When the goalie suddenly becomes a little wobbly, 
yeah, suddenly the coach isn't so brilliant. I don't think it's got anything to do with the coach being less brilliant, but it sure looks that way. Didn't he have a Rycroft too? <laughs> well, that Andrew Raycroft, Andrew yes. And, Raycroft, Raycroft. and Andrew Raycroft single-handedly made Pat Quinn dumb. <laughs> At least that's how it appeared. I don't believe it, but you know, that's, uh, I think Pat Quinn was every bit as good a coach the day he was fired as the day before he was hired. But the guys on the ice, they, they make you a brilliant coach or not. Well, anyway, you, we got to run Bob O'Neill. Patty and you think of, you know, you think of Pete Peters and you think of, uh, yes, uh, you know, uh, 33, 35 game on beaten streak. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, but, you had some great years. Always appreciate it. Thanks for doing this tonight. Always a pleasure. Thanks for having me, bud. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.